0: Welcome to the Understanding Society podcast. I'm your host, Emma Victoria-Holton. This podcast focuses on research that features in Insights, Understanding Society's annual publication, highlighting policy-relevant findings from longitudinal research that uses the study's data and provides commentary from leading policy thinkers. This year, the publication profiles longitudinal evidence, covering three themes... Gender inequality, environment, and living standards in later life. I was lucky enough to be able to attend the launch of Insights 2018 19 at an event in London. As part of the launch, Understanding Society hosted a debate to discuss the unfolding momentum on gender equality. New evidence using Understanding Society reveals the impact of part time working on pay, how parenthood shapes gender role attitudes towards employment and the effects of divorce on gender differences in housing futures. I was joined on the podcast by the panel from this debate. Sam Smethers, Chief Executive of the Fawcett Society, Monica costa Diaz Associate Director of the Institute for Fiscal Studies, Fran Bennett, Senior Research and Teaching Fellow at the Department of Social Policy and Intervention at the University of Oxford. She's also an active member of the Women's Budget Group as well. And finally, Helen Wright, founder of 923Jobs, a recruitment agency specialising in flexible roles for professionals. I started out by asking quite a loaded question. Just why does the gender pay gap still exist in today's society? Sam Smethers kicks things off, along with a few thoughts from Fran Bennett and Helen Wright.
1: The gender pay gap is the difference in hourly earnings, average hourly earnings between women and men. It's a very simple thing, but it has multiple causes and it's actually quite a complex issue. So whenever we talk about it, we're always keen to emphasise that you know, the unequal impact of caring roles is one of the causes and a significant cause, but it's not the only one. We still have discrimination in the workplace. So pay discrimination, pregnancy discrimination and so on. And we still have occupational segregation of women and men, partly through gender stereotyping, partly through a very sort of tramline sort of segregated labour market that they go into different career paths or different roles in the labour market. And that is another one of those drivers. And then you've got You know, women stuck at the bottom and men dominating the top. And so that sort of vertical segregation is another factor. And they're connected. You know, they're not totally in isolation of each other, those causes. They kind of interact with each other. But it's important to understand that it's a very complex thing. And so in order to close it, um, and we always say it's effectively a proxy for a productivity gap because we're underusing women's skills and abilities in the labour market. But in order to close it, you've got to take action across all of those causes. I've been struck
2: really by some of the research that's come out and been presented at this event. And I was really saddened when I realised that actually, when we all start out working, there's the gender pay gap is there right at the beginning. So although it widens after having children, it's there at the beginning. And, you know, it's interesting, we speak to hundreds of people who are looking for work, Many of them are women. The majority are women. And the number of times a woman will apologise for their salary expectations is huge. So we often hear people saying, well, this is what I was earning, but I know I won't get that now, which I think is an attitude that we need to try and change. But maybe it's there because the attitude is there in the workplace. So I think we've got some way to go. But hopefully things are changing.
3: I think also that the discussion we've been having was brought over to me, not just that the gender pay gap is a difference in hourly rates, as as Sam was saying, but also about the life course Aspects of those, so it 's not just that the hour hourly pay is a different rate, but also that women are likely to be doing fewer hours and are likely to have had longer interruptions out of work when they 've had children, and all that then accumulates as we were being told across the life course, and of course actually also goes into pensions, which we didn 't talk about today, but we could well have done because that tends to be reflected in in the gap in women 's pension expectations as well. Um, Picking up on that point,
2: really, I think the point that was made today about part-time work and part-time work's value. So I feel really strongly that actually we need to have more senior roles that are part-time. And I think it is happening, but not enough. And hopefully it will happen more and people will realise that our workplace should be really
1: about productivity rather than presenteeism. I think that came through the research really strongly, didn't it? The kind of penalty for working part-time. And it's a particularly strong feature of the UK labour market It isn't such a strong feature of other labour markets, but we do tend to basically lock women into low-pay part-time work and it is a very much a trade down that you do. If you have a child and you want to return part-time, you can see, again, through the graphs on the data, the, the drop in earnings. And then women stay at that level, so they drop down and they don't recover. And there's that lack of recovery of earnings, mm. as well as the sort of compound effect of caring over the life course that is a real concern and that's of course represents the massive waste to the economy because you've got the best educated female labour force that you've ever had and actually the labour market that doesn't respond well to that it doesn't use those skills and talents well.
2: I wonder how much of that what do you think is down to a lack of confidence in women if they are in a not mediocre but they're in a part-time role that perhaps is not exploiting their main skills do you think they lose confidence somehow?
1: I wouldn't say it's not there. I think we tend to think about what can she change about herself first before we think about the structural stuff. So I always try to start with the structural things and then get to that. So there are definitely women who need help with confidence, particularly in terms of returning to the workplace. I think that's an absolute key point. Transitions are difficult. And so helping women to deal with those transitions is important. But I really think it's about the fact that we don't have quality part-time jobs available. And if we did then, you know, she wouldn't be in a position where her choices are so limited.
3: And I think sometimes you have to think about particularly women with children. And Citizens Advice did a a report about this recently, which just showed you've got things settled. You know your transport, you know your childcare and you've got this part-time job and it's all working. And if you're encouraged to go for something different or something with more hours, you may have to change all that. And the logistics, the complicated logistics, particularly if you've got several children, of actually working around childcare and education and work and so on, just they may be at a delicate balance, which is what Citizens Advice was saying, which means that actually changing that may throw everything into chaos. And And also in terms of your children and the stability and security of your children, particularly single parents. Um, some research by Jane Miller and Tess Ridge a few years ago was showing that some lone parents actually decided not to progress on a career ladder at that particular time because they thought their children needed the routine and the stability and them at home for a certain number of hours to cope with what had happened in terms of the separation. So there, are, I think there are different reasons which mm-hmm. are to do with situations And uh, as Sam said, not just to do with the the woman herself.
0: And I think we'll certainly find here that part-time work is quite a running theme throughout this conversation. Monica, you've recently undertaken research looking at how the gender pay gap and career progression is largely driven by differences in working hours, also along with family formation. Do you want to talk to me in a little more detail about your research and how these factors affect wage inequality?
4: Sure. What you've said is exactly true. We have looked at uh, the extent to which the differences in working patterns of men and women can explain the gender pay gap that we observe and how they relate to the family formation and in particular to the arrival of children. We know that women are much more likely to take career interruptions after having children. And this can take both the form of taking some time off work and taking some short working hours, so part-time work. And this normally happens right after the birth of their first child, but it tends to continue for some long periods, in particular the part-time hours. They extend for years after the child is born, perhaps because new children arrive, or perhaps because they then find it difficult to return to full-time hours. Now, these interruptions are most likely driven by disproportionate amounts of childcare responsibilities that women take on. Now, the consequence of this behaviour is that women lose heavily in earnings progression. The losses happen gradually over time, so they are not sudden, they don't happen suddenly as women move, say, from full-time hours into part-time hours, but they accumulate over time as the gap in working experience, and in particular in full-time working experience, widens. The hourly wages of women are lower than those of men before the birth of the first child already, and that is by about 8% of the normal wages of uh, fathers. But the gap increases from around that amount, 8%, to about 30% when the child reaches uh, 20 years of age. And much of this is explained by the differences in working experience, or at least for the more educated women, this is the case. So we separate the experience in part-time and full-time, as you know, and we find that the later is really what adds value to wages. So women who continue working in full-time jobs would be able to close the gap by about 11 percentage points, that is to about half of what it would have been. But if they continue working in part-time, then actually their wage stagnates and doesn't progress any longer after they have a birth of the first child. So closing the experience gap that opens with parenthood would cancel about two-thirds of the additional gap that those with university degrees face after 20 years of having a child, but it does much less uh, to close the gap among those who have left education with only GCSE qualifications or lower.
0: And of course, as you mentioned, uh, Monica, A lot of this part-time work we're talking about is also low-skilled and low-paid, which means many people face having to rely on universal credit to top up their wages. Fran, I know your recent work with the Women's Budget Group, it was focused on gender implications of universal credit and financial abuse. What does a gender perspective on social security reveal and what are the effects of universal credit for women on a low income
3: Well I think when we're looking at gender and social security you have to look at not just the impact of benefits on the household income at this point in time but if you take a gender perspective you need to look at what the benefits position is in relation to the individual and also how that's going to play out over the life course and that relates to things like gender roles and relationships, and it relates to inequalities within the household and, of course, inequalities outside the household in terms of pay that we've been talking about. And you need to look at how Social Security might interact with that throughout the life course for people, for men and women. Um, So that's the kind of perspective on universal credit. So part of it might be about, for example, the increased risk of financial abuse, which is part of domestic abuse, of course, with the single payment of universal credit but it's also got universal credit has also got big implications for the situation of women as regards employment so in particular for second earners in couples there's kind of contradictory messages I think so on the one hand there's a lot of focus now on women in couples with children actually also being active in the labour market and that's part of the rules of universal credit that you have to do that as soon as your child reaches a certain age. But on the other hand, the incentives, the financial incentives for second earners, as they're called, within couples, so the person who might be returning to the labour market or the person who might have a lower paid job than the other partner, often women. The incentives for those individuals have actually, for many of them, become worse in universal credit compared with tax credit. So you've kind of got them caught in a pincer movement between, on the one hand, greater conditionality in terms of having to uh, make progress towards the labour market and then progressing within it. But also, on the other hand, you've got this weakened incentives in terms of what they might get in return for going into the labour market or progressing within their job. Do you think that women
0: within these positions, within the part-time, low-paid part-time roles, they just get into a cycle and they're trapped?
3: Well, I don't know. Part of the reason for the problem about the weakened incentives for many second earners in universal credit being a problem is that actually we know that those are amongst the groups that are most susceptible to incentives. So in fact, incentives don't have that much impact on full-time married men for example. The people who it does have an impact on are mothers in particular, both lone parents and women in couples, uh, particularly with younger children because they're the ones who, you know, there's both roles to fulfil, if you like, and they're much more susceptible to incentives. So actually it does make an impact if you make somebody, you know, better off, more better off, if you like, um, from going into work. So they, they may well get stuck, but there are ways in which you can help them. And I mean, one of the ways Which which has been suggested, which is not really the case in Universal Credit, is giving a boost to people who might progress within work. So uh, you might give them a time-limited allowance, which is what used to happen under the old system actually, uh, for some lone parents. You give them a time-limited allowance, you say you get extra if you get to a certain level or you get to a certain number of hours. Whereas universal credit is one taper that's the same. So it takes, you know, 63 pence of each extra pound you earn is taken away. And so some people are seeing that as a kind of takeaway rather than than a boost to their earnings. So there are ways in which you can give, I think, incentives to partners within couples and lone parents to progress within work and to go into work. But unfortunately, universal credit seems to have these contradictory messages, which means that that may not work.
1: You have to think about the sort of decision making that she's faced with in a situation where it's so marginal as to whether there's going to be a gain or she may even be facing a genuine loss. I mean, the prospect of becoming worse off and single parents are significantly worse off as a result of universal credit, or at least they were before the budget. So there's been some changes since then. But if we're not empathising with that decision making process and we don't understand the sort of competing factors she's got to think about, then the system is flawed you know and at the moment i think it's not building in as far as Ryan said enough of those additional incentives to understand that there's a a real push pull factor going on here you know she may well want to work she may well want it to to get back into the labor market but actually if you're not going to be materially better off or you risk being worse off and that's a massive disincentive and then you've got all the hassle of worrying about child care you know stability for your children etc there are so many additional things you've got to think about so the system really does have to Support and understand that rather than at the moment, it tends to sort of penalise and obstruct more than it does support and understand.
3: I mean, one of the other issues about it, which has actually been brought up by quite a lot of commentators, is that you have to pay childcare costs up front. Mm-hmm. So, Universal Credit is paid monthly in arrears, and they have helped actually in terms of increasing the percentage of childcare costs that you get help with. It's now 85% in universal credit and they've helped with extending that to people who are working under 16 hours a week. Both of those are improvements but you have to pay the childcare costs up front rather than afterwards and so that's really hard for people who particularly are used to being paid or getting benefit on a much more frequent basis than that and who are on low incomes. You know, so having to pay your childcare costs up front and not being able to reclaim them until the end of the month is really quite difficult for people. And that's one of the things that perhaps could be changed to improve the kind of situation that people find themselves in.
0: So not only are women in low paid part time work facing many penalties, also skilled women, professional women looking for part time work, they're also facing many penalties. And Helen You actually admitted during the event that you were actually one of those statistics and uh, it's driven you to set up your own recruitment company. Do you want to just talk to me a little bit more about that?
2: Yeah, so I had a 10-year career as a broadcast journalist and I was made redundant when I was pregnant with our first. And then I embraced motherhood for a few years. I was very lucky to be able to do that. And then when it came time for me to get back to the workplace, you know, I really struggled to find any kind of flexible opportunities or any opportunities at all that would then cover my childcare costs. And it was a very demoralising and frustrating time. And I remember standing in my local playground and I looked around and I just saw so many amazingly talented women, accountants, HR professionals, PR professionals, just heaps of talent and none of them were working and yet they all really wanted to So that's when I thought I'd set up a recruitment agency, 9 to 3, where we can help link this talent with businesses who are open to flexible working arrangements. And happily, that's happening more and more. I mean, I was just reflecting, actually, on the kind of conversations I was having a few years ago when I set up the business. And the kind of things I was talking about were things like, um, what is flexible working? So I was speaking to businesses saying, you know, this is what we do. Do you hire people on a flexible basis? and having to explain what that meant. Now I'm finding three years later, over that space of time, we're getting lots of businesses coming to us saying, we want to hire a flexible professional, can you help us? So the language of work, I think, has really changed over the last few years. And people now know about flexible working. We regularly talk about flexible working, agile working, remote working, annualised hours, all these kinds of things, which I I think are real steps in the right direction. Because I think, It is women who tend to bear the brunt of childcare or looking after elderly relatives, and it tends to be women who are looking for more flexible work. I would argue that we need everyone to ask for flexible working arrangements, not necessarily part-time, but flexible working arrangements. So this can be full-time, but maybe if we just tweak the start time, maybe, you know, if you're better in the morning, why don't you be at your desk at seven in the morning If you're like me and you work better in the evening, why don't you just come in a bit later? And actually, if we spread that start time, can you imagine the impact on our transport infrastructure? If we don't all have to be at a desk at nine o'clock, I just think the benefits are huge. I could just sit here probably all afternoon talking (laughs) about the
1: benefits, but I'll spare you for now. (sighs) I just wanted to kind of come in on that point about part-time work and and flexible work because I think it's really important. And we've argued for default flexible models, so requiring all jobs to be flexible working jobs unless there's a good business reason for them not to be. And I think within that, our thinking needs to sort of proactively include part-time as well because – Often for women, they do want a part-time role rather than a little bit of flexibility. Some will want that and others will want genuinely reduced hours. So how can we create senior roles that are part-time roles and think differently about the way we design work? And that is the thing I think would really make a big difference to the whole penalty model that we're talking about today because I think a lot of that data that we've seen in the presentation really shows very clearly the penalty you pay when you go to part-time work. So imagine if you went to part-time work that didn't penalise you. You know, wouldn't that be nice? And I just think it's something that's massively a flaw in our labour market, really.
2: I agree. And I think we need more businesses to say, do you know what, we have a senior role and we are making it part time. And Happily, we have clients who have created roles or decided they need new roles and they're saying we're going to make this part time. And it's genuinely part time, which I think is really encouraging that it is happening. The other thing is that sometimes we speak to candidates who, especially for larger organisations, they'll say, well, they did let me do four days a week, but I'm still working seven days a week and being paid for four. So I think we have the technology now to be able to work really flexibly, but we have to set our own expectations, I suppose. You know, if I have this day off, then I am not going to be answering emails on this day. I think we're all guilty of that. But I think the workplace seems to be changing and
0: it's not going to happen overnight, but it is happening. And you were talking about productivity just then. So productivity, flexible working hours. What else can an organisation do to make a change? Could it look at its culture perhaps?
2: Yeah, so we're really passionate about promoting an idea, an ethos of productivity over presenteeism. And, you know, we've spoken to clients who are actually having that conversation with us and saying, look, we've got this role. We don't really care how the candidate does it. This is what the outcome we want. This is the salary we will pay them. We don't need to see the backs of their head to know that they're doing it. So I think that that kind of attitude is a positive one. It's not possible in every role, but I think it's a positive attitude. I mean, when I spoke to my colleagues about this event, they all just said that having some kind of cheaper childcare would make a massive Mm -hmm. difference. And we've already touched on having more senior part-time roles. I mean, I wonder whether there's a place for having more programmes aimed at returners, so those who have had a career break for whatever reason, to try and help enable them into the workplace because there is sometimes an issue around confidence and then the longer that career
3: gap is, it's harder then to get back in and catch up, I suppose. I mean, one of the things that you said was about childcare and I was talking about childcare and and universal credit before, but there's actually a case, I think, for instead of saying you pay out for childcare and then you get compensated for it, doing what a lot of other countries do, which is actually try to create free or affordable childcare to begin with, rather than saying you then are compensated for the amount that it costs and the amount that it costs in the UK is very high compared with a lot of other countries. So one way of doing it would be instead of you, you know, if you like, um, using the market and the means test. So you know, you've got sort of a lot of marketised childcare, and then you give people means-tested help if that's too expensive for them. And even then, you don't give them 100%. (laughs) And you have ceilings on the cost for one child or two or more children. But instead of that, we might perhaps be thinking of actually paying the providers. And that would also give you more control over the providers as well. We have made, I think, some progress recently in terms of the free childcare for three- and four-year-olds, particularly the 15 hours, which is not dependent on work status. But I think more of that and more of the directing the subsidy via providers rather than a complicated way of doing it via universal credit would actually um, be much more helpful. I was interested in what, Sam, you were saying earlier about
2: some research the Force Society had done, saying how much extra, I call it, family admin... Actually, tended to fall on the woman's shoulders as well, because I'm in a position where I go to conferences. We've opened an office in Manchester, so I'm up there, I'm here, there, but we've got three small children. And if I have to do anything, wow, the logistics that are there, you know, shout out to my friend Josie, who has my children right now, thanks for me to do that. But my husband, he just doesn't have to think. And it's not a criticism of him. It's just kind of society and just how it happens. You know, he goes off on a conference and he goes off on a conference.
1: Yeah. I mean, it's interesting this because we often talk about who does the caring, but we don't talk about who does the worrying and who does the organising and who does the planning and, and all the other bits that go with it. And that the survey data I was sharing in the event was really just to say we'd ask that question and women were overwhelmingly the ones picking up all those additional tasks around children, you know, the dental appointments, the party organisation, you know, everything really around the child as well as the caring for the child. And so I think it's important that the visibility of the reality of the role of parenting in all its great pleasures and complexity and generally how that falls between women and men is really important. And speaking personally, I mean, I'm now in a position where my partner is doing much more of the worrying around the children than we've ever done before. So we, we are sharing that differently and it's, I feel quite liberated. I would say. <laughs> 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 Some really great points there. And uh, just before I bring it to
0: a close, I wanted to throw this out to everyone. Just what do you think can be done policy-wide and within our infrastructure and even in the home to help tackle the gender pay gap and just what would the
1: positive impact be on wider society? I think there's a massive dividend that we'd all reap if we were had a more gender equal society so genuinely we'd all benefit because we'd be creating a more productive economy and that was something we could all gain from. I think what could Change. There are some policy levers that would help families make unconstrained choices about who does the caring. So, enabling dads to take better paid, longer periods of paid leave from work dedicated to dads would be really important for sharing care at the beginning. And I think that would set families off on a different trajectory and also make it harder for employers to really work out where the penalty should fall, you know, the kind of genuine motherhood penalty. And that probably would lead to less discrimination against pregnant women too in the workplace i think flexible working by default we've said that before but i think that would be really helpful just to, to start off an assumption that we're going to have flexibility as the norm rather than uh nine to five model as being the norm that we're kind of tweaking um, and i think definitely to really think about the practicalities of how is our infrastructure both the childcare infrastructure and our transport infrastructure supporting and enabling women to get to and from childcare, to and from work and home and if that infrastructure isn't there then she isn't going to be able to get to work and she isn't going to be able to contribute to the economy. And at the moment, we don't think about things like transport in a gendered way. So we don't understand Mm. that we have to plan differently. Mm.
3: I think that fits in really well with what the Women's Budget Group says, which I'm an active member of. They've talked about infrastructure quite a lot because they say, you know, we look at infrastructure projects and we think cranes and we think roads and we think railways and we think construction. But actually, if you look at the social infrastructure, like uh, Sam was saying, then you would look at childcare as social infrastructure and you would look at social care, which we mustn't forget either, and which is at the moment suffering very much from underfunding. And you would also be able to create lots of jobs there and you'd create lots of jobs. At the moment, you would create lots of jobs for women in those areas as well. So you get a kind of economic dividend from that as well by creating... Jobs with social infrastructure, but it's partly a way of thinking. It's partly about saying if we're thinking of investment, then we're thinking of investment in people and in caring and not just investment in construction and in great big building projects and so on. So I think that's really important. And it also shows that you can get benefit from that in terms of jobs and in terms of the economy. But I would also say that it's important not to only think about productivity and the economy and jobs and so on and actually say the gender pay gap, doing something about the gender pay gap and doing something about gender equality more generally is a good in and of itself. And we shouldn't just be looking at it for instrumentalist reasons. We should also be looking at it in principled terms as something which we should be aiming at anyway. Yeah, no, I
2: agree with what both Sam and Fran have said completely and wholeheartedly. And I just would really want to encourage all employers just to think really hard about every role in their organisation and whether they are open to flexible working arrangements or making them part time and thinking about making more senior roles part time and not being scared of that concept and thinking, do you know what, this could be a good thing.
4: Yeah, I think it is crucial that policies consider that women need to be able to progress in their careers and so need to create the environment that allows women to take on the responsibilities of work and the flexibility that work sometimes requires. So one potential area that uh, should be probably rethought, even though it's an area where there is policy already, is flexible and affordable childcare available to mothers, in particular mothers of young children. We continue to have very expensive childcare, very inflexible childcare in the sense that the amount of childcare provided in terms of the number of hours is, can be very restrictive. And there is less little flexibility around the shadows that are provided. And so increasing uh, the amount of childcare available in terms of full-time childcare and in terms of the flexibility of the hours in childcare can be a trigger to allow women to go back into full-time work or to go back into work that fits in with their aspirations in the job market, in the labor market. The other area uh, that uh, that may have important consequences is incentives to work that women face. Now, in the UK, we have uh, had for many years now subsidies to working families, in particular to low-paid working families in the form of working tax credits, and now in the form of the universal credit. In designing these benefits, we need to take into account that Part-time work actually has a very strong penalty uh, for the progression of uh, women's wages and for their careers, and this should be taken into account in their design. Up to now, there has been a strong incentive uh, for women to work part-time, and particularly for low-paid women uh, who are entitled to the tax credits. In Moving forward, we need to rethink this type of design if we want to allow women to progress more.
0: And I think that's a perfect note to close on. (laughs) Thank you. you. So all that's left for me to say is thank you to our guests, Sam Smethers, Monica Costadiers, Fran Bennett and Helen Wright. Thank you. Thanks. Thanks. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks for listening to the Understanding Society podcast. For more information on the Understanding Society study go to understandingsociety.ac.uk. You can also follow Understanding Society on Twitter at USociety.